Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. What are we talking about when we talk about food? Or, more specifically, food sustainability. When we talk about food, we are really talking about the complex relationship between food, water, environment, technology, policy, and ethics. Food impacts us on so many levels, from the personal to the global. Individuals, communities, and national governments have to constantly make choices about which food reaches our tables. And for a variety of reasons, climate change, energy costs, global economic inequality, these choices are becoming more and more complicated. For this reason, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists around the world are turning their attention to this area. To shine a light on this development, Columbia Engineering and Columbia Entrepreneurship brought together a panel of Columbia experts who are contributing to the global dialogue on food to discuss available solutions to feed a hungry planet. The discussion was moderated by Dean Mary Boyce from Columbia Engineering, and she kicked off the evening with this question for the panelists. So we've been talking about um, a little bit here about how food is a global challenge and quite multidimensional. And I'd like to, for each of you to amplify a bit on that and, and give us your, your perspective on where are the opportunities in food, where are the challenges, where are you finding your, your contribution? Maybe we'll start with Dixon. Dean Boyce is speaking to Dixon Despommiers. He's a professor emeritus of microbiology and public health at Columbia. And if you have an interest in vertical farming, you've definitely heard of him. Well, it sounds like a stretch to uh, hear my background and then wonder how I got involved in this uh, disparate uh, subject of vertical farming. But, but it actually does relate quite directly if you consider that half of the world uses human feces as a fertilizer. This is a strategy not for growing food, but rather for the parasites to transmit themselves from one person to the next. So if you could find a way <laughs> to eliminate the use of human and animal feces as a fertilizer and still have food, uh, you could solve about half of the world's problems that relate to infectious diseases that are spread at the soil level. So that's basically uh, the connection that I'd like you to make in your mind to say, how can someone with such a diverse background as intracellular parasitism get involved in this food system process? This little intracellular parasite, by the way, was transmitted from person to person by eating raw pork, which happens to be an animal that's raised throughout the world. So I became, unfortunately, very familiar with the food systems of countries that had this as a major problem. So to see how you deal with a foodborne illness in various countries, including Southeast Asia, uh, Europe, and the United States, made me aware of the fact that we have to be doing something else in order to, to wipe out these infections without having to use drugs or vaccines. So I think uh, re rethinking the agricultural initiative that began some 10,000 years ago is a good way to start. So if you look at the way we farm today, basically there's no difference in the way we used to farm 10,000 years ago, save for a few technological advances, of course, uh, you know, commercial fertilizers and, and tractors and that sort of thing, but we're still plowing the land, we're still planting the seeds, and we're still harvesting in basically the same way 
as we did, let's say, 30 years or 40 years or 20, you know, 100 years ago. That has to change now because if you look at how much farmland we need to feed the amount of people that we have, it turns out that we use the size of South America to grow food. That's an enormous amount of land and that doesn't include grazing for animals, like for cows and stuff. So if you realize from outer space you can see what we're doing, <laughs> don't listen to anybody's you know, you know, propaganda about, oh, there's plenty of land out there. No, there's not plenty of land out there, not arable at least. So when you look at the crisis that's occurring, the population is increasing. Uh, that's not going to stop. <clears throat> Urbanization is increasing and it's becoming chaotic in most uh, cities that don't have infrastructures like like the Western world, for instance. And so it is a, a chaotic thing to visit, let's say, Mumbai, uh, or to Chennai, or, or even to Beijing. <laughs> it's, it's not the same as living in New York City or living in Amsterdam. So those problems are real, and they have to be solved in many ways. You have to get water and food and clothing and housing and entertainment and all those other things, and it's just a big mess. Um, if you look at it as an ecological problem that needs to be solved, then that's where the engineers come in, and, and you can use biomimicry as a way of looking at, if nature does it this way, can we use a technological method or methods to do the same thing for us as nature does for it? Because nature is extremely economical. And so that's, that's basically where I'm coming from, from this perspective of, of vertical farms. Vertical farms are not the answer, uh, they're part of the answer. If a city can make its own food, then you can start to behave like an ecosystem. And that's, that's basically okay, right. The next panelist to comment on the challenges and opportunities being recognized in food was David Rosenberg. He's a Columbia Business School alum and a co-founder of AeroFarms, which builds and operates vertical farms in urban areas. You also may remember him from an earlier episode of this podcast when we spoke with him about the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of tensions in, in our environment. There are tensions of a depletion of arable land, like Dixon was saying, uh, less water. And you just look at California, all the stresses in water right now. We're depleting our groundwater, going uh, deeper and deeper, and taking or, or depleting our surface water, going deeper and deeper, and depleting our, our groundwater as well as water contamination, as well as population growth, as well as urbanization. So there's a lot of macro tensions going on. I'm an optimist. I think there is a lot of solutions and that technology can kind of solve for. So if you take Aero Farms, for example, we're a vertical farming company. We've uh, developed a way of growing leafy green vegetables. Think spinach, kale, arugula. We've grown, in fact, about 250 different varieties of leafy green vegetables, which also speaks to bring back heirloom varieties. And we do it using approximately 95% less water, about 50% less fertilizers, zero pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. Our crop cycles are about 16 days, seed to harvest, versus 30 days. And what that equates to in the field is three crop turns a year. We have 22. So our, our productivity per square foot is about 70 times that of a field farmer. So in a very small area with relatively few inputs, we could produce a lot of product. And this isn't, like with all the tensions, the macro tensions going on, there's not one problem solves everything. It's a systematic approach. Part of that systematic approach is behavioral. So we have this notion in the, in the US, of like, 
how many calories do we take into our bodies, it's also what type of calories you take in. So how many nutrients, how many uh, vitamins are you taking in is an important behavioral switch that needs to be made. So it is very much a system approach and solutions, but technology is going to come up with some of those solutions. And we'd like to think at Aero Farms, we're helping lead the way in a revolution that's needed in how we feed our planet. We're really in a very, very deep crisis in agriculture, and I really look more uh, locally, you know, in the U.S., as well as I see out globally as to what's going on. That's Adnan Durrani. He's a CEO of American Halal and Saffron Roads. He's also a graduate from the engineering school. Um, you know, we, we, right now we have uh, mistreated animals, terrible cruelty going on on a number of farms in this country. Uh, we have uh, you know, exploited uh, workers. We have uh, farmers who are being criminalized for raising their own crops and farming their own farmlands. And we have basically a lot of consumers, I'd say 90% consumers don't even have a clue of what's on their plate when they're eating it. Uh, many of you have heard of super weeds that are completely resistant to herbicide. There's 17 million acres of super weeds in U.S. right now and 26 states. And livestock is being pumped with all sorts of hormones and antibiotics. It's causing all sorts of problems and carcinogens. It's shortening the life of the livestock out there. And obviously the farmlands are becoming very toxic. As David just also pointed out, the, the, the water tables are getting completely polluted. Uh, the farmlands are getting saturated with carcinogens. I mean, this is real science now, you know? And, and, and so we do have a real crisis. And yet, you know, by the way, my wife calls me a perennial optimist. So you can see that, you know, what angle I come from in the, in, in the agricultural business. But I am an optimist. Uh, I really am very optimistic because I'm, I see, especially among the younger generation, tremendous amount of, of focus and dedication to improving uh, the global agriculture system. And, and I, I come at, come at it from the point of view of sustainable and organic farming. There's much more consciousness about that. It's still a tiny speck in terms of the percentage of farming that's out there. And it certainly doesn't compare to the yields we see in vertical farming, which is a wonderful thing that both Hugh and Dixon are, are doing. Uh, but we, we, we've been able to prove through things we've done through the years that we do get better yields you know, with organic farming, that sustainable farming is a, a much better way to treat the environment. Uh, we, you find much healthier quality, uh, higher quality water in the water tables when you have organic farms. Uh, it's also a very good microsystem, uh, kind of a microeconomic system where the farmers and the workers are benefiting from living wages, not just minimum wages. So there's an economic benefit to it. Um, so you know, I, that's, where, that's what I feel is a solution, and I'm not alone in this. I mean, uh, the President's Council on Agriculture, the UN, WHO has said that the only solution for the food crisis we're seeing in sub-Saharan Africa is to promote organic and sustainable farming. Uh, it is localized. It's something that you know the farmers in, in certain regions, third world countries, or less developed countries can really embrace and improve their yields and improve their economies with. So that's what I feel are the challenges and some of the solutions that, that I see. The last panelist to weigh in was Sunny Wu. Sunny is the managing director of GSR Ventures, where he focuses on investments in new materials and new energy sectors. Well, uh, from our perspective, uh, from China, um, capital is not a constraint. Technology is. Um, that's why we came a long way. We met, we met up with uh, David three years ago, and we're delighted to be able to partner with the team. And um, I grew up uh, in boys uh, not have, having enough to eat. So I still remember the days my, my father would tell me that a potato is more valuable than a piece of gold. 
Um, that was, you know, 30, 30, 40 years ago. So I think, uh, you know, if you look at it from, from China, uh, food safety certainly is in everybody's mind. And I think vertical farming provides that solution. But uh, more importantly, I think uh, uh, the science and the engineering and the economics of, of uh, modern farming, whether it's seeds, uh, fertilizers, uh, or new way of, of uh, farming, would, would be the major emerging sectors uh, throughout the world, not just in, not just in, in uh, developed economies, but, but in China where, for example, the soils are contaminated, water are contaminated because of industrialization. So we're really, really uh, happy to, to partner with our farm. I think this is an experiment. It's not yet a solution. It's where we are learning. I think we, we think this could be very scalable. Um, we have plans to scale this to maybe 150, 200 farms in China. Uh, we can use the, um, use the uh, industrial uh, uh, real estate yes. for, for farming. So capital, I think, uh, is bridging ideas with the market. So I think uh, we came together. So I think, you know, often entrepreneurs, I would say, I did a startup up to MIT. It was difficult to raise money. I think everybody, if you try to get a startup, raising money is not, not easy. But it's, it's always bridging the ideas with the market. And I think when that happens, uh, we'll find a way. We brought the Minister of Science and Technology to visit uh, L Farm just a couple months ago. He's delighted. He's our champion now. So I think uh, the market de demands it. When, uh, when there's a market, I think we'll find the capital. As you may have noticed, vertical farming comes up a lot around food sustainability conversations. If you're unfamiliar with vertical farming, it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's indoor farming where food is produced in vertically stacked layers, for example, in skyscrapers, with controlled environments. The benefits of these farms are innumerable. They require less energy, less water, they produce less pollution, and since food can be produced year-round, there are no seasonal crops, and therefore no crop loss. But, as Dixon puts it, there are other reasons for establishing urban agriculture besides the entrepreneurial ones. If you make it out to Jackson, Wyoming, they're building a three-story vertical farm on the side of a parking lot, and they're not doing it to make money, although they will. <laughs> they're doing it to hire the developmentally disadvantaged mostly Down syndrome people. The rate of unemployment in the state of Wyoming is 95% in that, in that particular group. And they're staffing most of their uh, low-tech uh, tasks with that workforce. And for that reason, they got a big grant from the state of Wyoming. And they are a model for what can be done. Uh, it serves the purpose of all those high-end restaurants that you are so fond of after you do your apres ski. Um, if you're a trout fisherman like I am, <laughs> the summertime is a great time to be there too. And I know these people very well because I've actually visited the vertical farm in its construction phase. And they're, they're very altruistic people. They're not doing this uh, solely from the standpoint of being able to expand this into a very large industry. They're doing it to make a point. And that point will be made again and again and again at a smaller level than perhaps AeroFarms is. And I, I love your statement, by the way, so don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I want to see this insinuated into the fabric of cities. I think this needs to be in every city. Mm -hmm. Cities need to produce some of the things that they consume. Otherwise, they're still parasites. And 
remember that's what I do for a living, or at least I used to. <laughs> I am the parasitologist on this stage. <laughs> so <clears throat> beware. <laughs> so I know a parasite when I see one. <laughs> one of my former students is sitting right over there from medical school. He came here. I hope, you know, he's doing very well, by the way. <laughs> and so, so cities behave like parasites. Okay. They do. They they consume. They don't give off. They don't give back. And so, Sammy, I'll take on that point. I think uh, for industries to grow, you have to have emotional connectedness. Just like we buy electric vehicle, we want to be part of it. I think uh, food safety will be a, a big driver for the, for this a catalyst for this industry. We have uh, invested in in China already to augment what the Aero Farm is doing, a home modular system that you can grow vegetables at your balcony. Mm. Um, and 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 the key is uh, cost effectiveness. So the energy cost and the LEDs. Uh, the, the technology is very mature, as Elfone demonstrated, but you have to have the, the economics, right? But also you have to have the emotional connectedness of you know, uh, consumers, that this is the way of living. Uh, I think you know, if you take Uber as an example of a shared economy, I think with information and with wireless, a lot of this can be done. Absolutely. What Elfone what has done amazingly is actually working with the distributors like uh, Whole Foods, and saving the uh, race right. uh, uh, through the, the logistics transportation. So I think uh, this is just an early, early phase of this, this industry. So it's helping to um, decentralize uh, agriculture right. in, a, in, a, in a way. Um, the it, it is. It's like a big part is the value. So there's this movement to build on what you're saying of, of local food production and it's about disintermediating the supply chain so a lot of it is a supply chain play and then you have these other factors that are becoming greater awareness of the environment and the consumer is really asking for what are the what's the impact to the environment and that's providing some assistance to the business model uh, from a pricing standpoint there's typically a 20% premium of the category of organics over regular food and then the food safety element of uh, the consumer asking for like real visibility in the supply chain and traceability. And with a lot of automation and vision, you have a, a recall. So there was just a recall two days ago from Taylor Farms, which is one of the world's largest leafy green grower for E. coli. So imagine the farmer saying, well, it's in these 1,500 acres. And the difference between someone like AeroFarm saying, well, it's within this three foot, three foot by five foot cloth. So it's like really transformational on the technology side towards that visibility of the inputs and where things are grown. And just to highlight what David just said, I mean that local food movement 10 years ago was only a billion dollars. Today it's $8 billion. So for those young alums or entrepreneurs in the room who are wondering, you know, where's the, where's the golden rainbow going to come? I mean, this industry, first time in 30 years I've been in this industry that I've seen technology driving really disruptive change and enormous opportunity for young entrepreneurs to enter. Speaking of disruptions, Dixon had another example in Tokyo. So there is this uh, building in Tokyo that was built in 2010. It's a human resource building. It's nine stories tall. It has a green wall on the outside just to let you know that they are environmentally conscious. But as you walk in to go to work, there's a rice farm. You encounter a rice farm the moment you walk into the door. Then you go to your office, and there are tomatoes hanging down that are growing hydroponically. Um, the commissary is up on the fourth floor. 
you can go online and see this building, and it's, it's quite an amazing building. It's a mixed-use building, obviously. Anybody who works there gets their lunch for free. So they go downstairs and they pick some rice and they pick some tomatoes and they pick some green beans and they pick some lettuce and they, they put it all on the tray and they give it to the chef and they sit and they wait 20 minutes and out comes their meal. That's a different model than a commercial vertical farm, obviously. But if every building had that built into it also, that's an addition to what you're hearing now, how much more pleasant would our lives be? And, and they're doing it to demonstrate that urban agriculture works. That's why they're doing it. So they're, this company is paying the whole freight for having another company come in and manage all of these vertical farm iterations to show people anything's possible if you put your mind to it. Well, they're changing behavior too. Exactly, exactly. Two other kind of trends that I think are exciting yeah. is um, like um, bugs. <laughs> um, so people, like there's a lot of protein, whether it's crickets or other sort of bugs, and it, which also speaks to behavioral. I had a, a bar the other day that tasted good till I found out what was in it. <laughs> but, but some of these are like, they take a lot less inputs and resources, so I think there's something disruptive in terms right. of those ingredients. And, and you're seeing it also, whether it's like fish farming, there's a lot of, so there's a lot that that industry has to grow. So these are, whether it's vertical farming and leafy greens, bug farming, fish farming, there's a, a lot of, we're all at a relatively early stage. If this was a nine inning game with extra innings, we're at like the second inning. So here, the, to Sonny's point earlier about proof of scale. So we're right now, we recently, we're building a $40 million project. We got financing from Goldman Sachs and Prudential. To a certain extent, that's proof of kind of concept, proof of economics, but now we're putting in all this automation. How these different technologies scale is key. And it's gonna be a lot of complexity, managing a lot of complexity, hiring a lot of bright engineers to, uh, to do so and as they evolve. But they are gonna evolve, they're gonna have a bigger and bigger piece of the pie, and there's gonna be continuing innovation and reduction of these like tensions in our resources. But for now, the tensions over resources is high. And one place that is keenly aware of these tensions is California, which is currently in its fifth year of its drought. The entire agricultural industry of California is worth about $65 billion. Half of that's dairy farming. Right. So the other half is what they're losing. They're losing all of their ability to grow leafy greens and tomatoes and zucchinis and, and, and also foodborne diseases. The more the farming becomes contracted and the more that resource becomes available to the limited predators that are out there that want to eat that as well, the amount of foodborne illnesses will go up and that will spoil the rest of that industry unless something dramatic <coughs> happens. And by the way, something dramatic is happening, El Nino. So that's the other part of this equation. You've had a drought for five years. What's the definition of a drought? It's a period of dryness in between two wet periods. And this is going to be a wet period like we've never seen. Yeah. And that's going to essentially trash what's left of their agricultural initiative except for their dairy farming. And that's going to be a major, major, major burden on the middle class consumer of the United States. The price of food's going to go through the ceiling. What choices will you have? The other thing, I was at a meeting last week at Columbia University <laughs> uh, at the Lerner Center, uh, sponsored by the American Geographical Society. And their take on all this is that in terms of natural disasters or even civil disasters caused by warring parties, food security and safety becomes number one. 
refugee medicine, all of this, and vertical farming is the solution. That has to be right now, immediate. You ship that food over, it's already ready to eat. All you have to do is pick it. That's a real advantage here. You, you don't have to grow that. So have you seen the movie The Martian? Why in the hell were they growing potatoes? I know why, because the book was written before this concept. <laughs> no, it's true, it's true. So if they were to rewrite the book, hey, not a bad idea, they would have deposited on Mars a self-contained vertical farm with all the biodiversity indexes. That guy could have stayed alive for four years waiting to get rescued. Maybe he wouldn't want to be rescued. He lives in glorious isolation for the rest of his life eating stuff. Now, the biggest challenge I see here, grains. That's what started the, the agricultural revolution to begin with 10,000 years ago. When we learn how to grow grains indoors cheaper than you can grow them outdoors, game over. Following this panel discussion, there was a Q&A section. And one surprising, or perhaps not so surprising question, was about taste. How can, or how will, indoor farming affect taste? There's um, a lot of thoughtfulness, and this is where you could take uh, fully controlled agriculture, a lot of thoughtfulness on how to accentuate certain flavors. So the knock on hydroponic growing, where in-house growing is you don't have the flavors. So here, and this is really, like at Aero Farms, we like to say we are engineering meets horticulture meets data science. And it's the data science that understands what qualities of a, of a plant can we accentuate to bring out pepperiness, to bring out sweetness, to bring out bitterness to, with texture, to make it softer, harder, and so forth. And the data science allows us, so if you have 18 different minerals and elements, if you have all the spectrum of light under the rainbow, if you have temperature, pH, humidity, all these different inputs, how do you stress a plant to accentuate these? And we are 100% doing it now. So we've had to, we've had big, last week, or the, sorry, yesterday was the New York Produce Show, one of the, the second largest produce show in the world. And we had major buyers tasting our stuff, continually saying they've never tasted product that tasted this good. So we're actually absolutely hitting this head on and blowing the competition away, if you will, with the taste. So the question almost begging to be asked is, what can't you raise indoors? Um, and I'm often asked the question, what can't you raise indoors? I said, have you ever visited the New York Botanical Garden? And they said, oh yeah, I've been there. I said, well, there's every exotic plant in the world being raised under the most ideal conditions you can imagine. And so the answer is, there's nothing you can't raise indoors. And you don't have to use genetically modified anything. These plants are very happy right. to be indoors and be happily taken care of, you know, 24-7 by the most uh, overseeing people I've ever met. They are absolutely anal about every aspect of this industry to make sure that they don't screw up so that the public develops a negative attitude about them as well as they have about these other food producers. And so I think because of that, you've, you've been ultra careful, your reputation is growing, and the moment that growth turns into trust for the public, this industry is going to go crazy. I mean, it's almost there now, but I, I can see this as a major, major, major uh, urban agricultural initiative.
If you're in the New York City area, be sure to join us at the Startup Columbia Festival. Every year, this two-day event brings together the Columbia startup community in a celebration of innovation and entrepreneurship. This year's festival is happening on April 28th and April 29th, and they have some incredible speakers, including the co-founder of Snapchat, the co-founder of Venmo, and two journalism alumni who work on PBS's flagship investigative journalism series, Frontline, which actually recently released an incredible full-length 360-degree immersive documentary on the South Sudan. In addition to the panels and speaker sessions, the festival will be catered by Columbia-founded food startups. So be sure to come hungry. To find out more about the festival and to register, go to startupcolumbia.org. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.